0: Excellent. Thank you very, very much, Grace. Really well read. Uh, Thank you to all of you who have read such long passages from 1 Samuel um, in our services. On a Sunday morning, it's really important that uh, the Bible is 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 well read as as we listen to it, and especially these big passages as well. It's big sweeps of stories that we want to go through, and uh, that's why we're reading them uh, as we are. And uh, thank you very much, Grace. Thank you for uh, Will as well, who's really helped us get our bearings in the book um, over the last few weeks and uh, has helped me tremendously in getting me to a place where I think I can perhaps now preach a sermon from it. So I'm very grateful. Praise God for you, Will. Thank you uh, for leading this series for us um, in the, the the church. And this morning. I want to start where Will started all those weeks ago uh, with the question that he set up for us as we embarked on the series in 1 Samuel, and that is, where are our change in fortunes going to come from? Or uh, put it another way, where is true change and national renewal going to come from? Uh, 2024 will be a year where more people will go to the polls and elections across the world than any other in Earth's history. We here in the UK have elections... This year, the US, India, and and all of them are quite consequential elections. And the question that is in the mind of every single voter in those those elections is that question. Where is change going to come from? Where is national renewal going to come from? Or more appropriately, who is going to bring that change, that renewal that we feel we so desperately need? The world is crying out for hope, for upturned fortunes, especially in the beleaguered West. Well, who is going to bring all that about? And that is a question that hovers over the whole book of 1 Samuel, as uh, Will has been saying, but it comes into sharp focus this morning as it is literally asked of our passage today. All the way through, but have a look at 1 Samuel 8 verse 19. And the people said, But there shall be a king over us, for what reason? That we also may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." The demand for a king from the people of God is because of the need for national renewal and change. In short, we need a leader unlike the ones who've let us down before and unlike the kings of the other nations. And that desire sort of makes sense. Look at where we are in 1 Samuel, where we have been over the past few weeks. We're in the time of the judges of Israel, where God's people are badly led. We saw last week that there's no true godly leadership that can take on Israel's enemies. Eli the judge was old, blind and weak. His sons, the priests, were sexual deviants, gluttons and bullies. And as a pinnacle of this leadership that is rotten to the heart, the Israelites go into battle against the Philistines toss the Ark of the Covenant of God at their enemies like a, a magic charm in the hope that God might do something for them, despite having ignored him for decades, and the Ark is stolen, God's presence has departed the nation, the people are defeated, everyone is terrified, and all the leaders are killed in a day. In short, it is a total and utter unmitigated disaster. And in this colossal failure of leadership, the people cry out, where is our national renewal going to come from? Who will change our fortunes? And it makes sense that they're crying that. But where do they turn? Who do they seek to be the answer to that question? Well, they don't turn to the God who last week dethroned Dagon and afflicted the Philistines and brought himself back to the people out of his power and faithfulness. No. 1 Samuel 8 verse 4. And all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Where do God's people turn to in times of trauma, faithlessness, challenge and trial for change, hope and renewal? Not to God, but to the nations. You see, the Israelites, the people of God, cannot comprehend an answer to that question of national renewal without it including what the world offers by way of power. And that brings us to our first point of two this morning, for it is true of God's people in 1 Samuel, and it's true of us today, that in seeking renewal and hope in times of trial, we can fall into the trap of believing that the impressive worldly king is the king that we really want. And if we're honest, this desire for a king, as we've said, that looks like the nations, it kind of makes sense to Israel that the pull factor of Israel is huge as they look at the nations around them. They seem to be powerful. We always seem to be overrun by these nations. The Philistines always seem to have the upper hand over us. We're tired of that being the case. We want to be like them. The pull to the nations makes sense for there to be a a call for a king to be like the nations who is doing so well, who can change fortunes, bring hope, establish renewal, it, it kind of makes sense. In fact, and this is really important as we come to the crux of the book of 1 Samuel, especially in regards to the king, not only does the cry for a king make sense, but the call for there to be a king who can bring this kind of change under these kind of circumstances from these fallen leaders under such a time as this is what God wants his people to be crying out for. You see, a human king was always a part of God's plan for his people. And we know that because the Old Testament makes that crystal clear. In Deuteronomy 17, you see this story, this very story in 1 Samuel 8, foreshadowed to the letter where the law of actually choosing a human king is made clear. Deuteronomy 17:14 says this. And when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell it in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You see? It it was actually always the legal intention of God to get a human king for his people. And in such a time as these. It was always the intention of God that Israel, in fact, would ask for a king. What was not the intention of God is that the people would choose a king like the nations. And, And Deuteronomy actually says that that was actually going to happen, that they were going to go to the nations for their king. He says, no, no, no. God's intention was that the people would ask God to choose a human king like him see, the problem is not that they've asked for a king. The problem here is that the people want to choose their own human king themselves who looks like all the kings of the nations around them and to not entrust God to choose his king for them. A king who is to look and act and behave the opposite of the kings of the nation. And that's the crux of this issue, verse 7 of chapter 8. That's a key verse in our passage. This request displeases Samuel. He knows they're not asking for a king in the right way, but Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, they have rejected me as king over them. You see, their request for a king like the nations is in actual fact a request to replace God himself to remove him from power. It's, it's no longer an understandable mistake. No, it is rank apostasy. It is outright blasphemy after everything that God has done for his people, after last week, where even the Philistines understand the power of God of Israel, who they know, as we read today in our passage, brought Israel up out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea and established them in a foreign land, after God had given his people a nation and food and blessing and prominence and wealth and status and purpose, when they had been nobodies in the world before then, after God had given them freedom from slavery, the people of God have the temerity to turn around and say, actually, no, I want a Philistine-type king over me, please. What we don't want is you. And is this not the same affliction that has afflicted the church over the centuries? For before we sort of pour red-hot scorn on the people of Israel and think, oh, how stupid are you? Is that not the very sin we can as humans generally, it's the human condition, but also as God's people specifically can fall into? The simple but deadly idea of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. As a small church on the edge of a modern secular city in a modern secular environment, we will feel this pressure to want what the world offers by way of power and security. The pressure from the world outside is so huge sometimes, so overwhelming, so all-encompassing and intense, it looks so powerful and sorted and safe and secure and accepted that we can sometimes get to the places, believers, where we cannot comprehend any kind of respite or change or hope or spiritual renewal without there being accommodation for the world to take over us in some way and rule us. I'm very grateful to another minister for this. Think of the church throughout history, he said. The Victorian church that paid lip service to and benefited from empire, colonialism, and slavery the Lutheran Church in Germany, for falling in line behind Hitler and fascism. The Eastern Orthodox Church for promoting destructive socialism under Stalin, who defends Putin in his endeavours to this day. Even perhaps the the right-wing Republican evangelicalism of the US, maybe, who will sell their soul to get their strong man elected, who is head and shoulders over everyone else at all costs of decency, truth, integrity, and honor, all under the conceit that the church must be protected. I was chatting to a friend of mine who lives in Canada the other day, and he was in the US very recently for a conference, and he was going down the highway in his car, and above the highway on those huge billboards that they have in the US was an almighty picture of a brooding Donald Trump, a billboard which was funded by an American church organization, and across his colossal face were written the words, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. Isn't that staggering? It is breathtaking. It is blasphemy. It is rank apostasy. It is so starkly one Samuel, it's hard to parody, isn't it? It is the human condition to want those strongman leaders that look like the world. To fully believe that this worldly man, that worldly woman, this worldly system, that worldly morality will bring our nation or our church the change that we need. And the church is very much afflicted with that disease. It can be. And before we ride off into the sunset of hypocrisy on our high horses, look at where we are. The established churches in the West, in our country, we have willingly chosen to make a pact with the nations. Well, we have said, well, we have no choice but to change our view on biblical ethics of sex, marriage, gender, and sin. We have to bend. We have to conform. We have to have an accommodation in our church for the world to guide us, or we'll be made to suffer for it too much in this life. If you can't beat them, we have got to join them. It's the only way for the church to be protected, to, to thrive, to survive. But even more closer to home, what of our here this morning, where the reformed evangelical church has chosen good-looking, slick-speaking, highly-motivated, strongman leaders who can speak truth to power, who talk a good game, who have unbelievable strategy and vision and all the tactics of a business CEO, but who lack all integrity, all humility, all service, all godliness, all self-sacrifice, all King Jesus-type quality and who build up empires of charisma, character, personality, and pride, built on authority, bullying, bravado, fear, and strength. And the church always suffers for it. The church at points throughout the ages has always fallen into the trap of wanting a strong human king that looks brave and powerful and unbeatable in the world's eyes, a human king of our own choosing, a human king that looks like the world, where when the going gets tough, we're in a state of collapse, where we're tired of seeing everyone else be comfortable, we're tired of everyone else succeeding, we're tired of being on the wrong side of history. We, we turn and say, I desperately want what they have. We will have a strong man leader. 1 Samuel eight nineteen. no, there shall be a king over us, we demand it. But the church never learns. And the church is always crushed under those leaders. Be careful what you wish for, people of God, says Samuel. And that's the problem with this desire of the people of God in one Samuel. It's a hiding to nothing. Samuel turns around to the people, chapter 8, verse 10 to 17, and their request, after their request, and he says very bluntly, be careful what you wish for, for this worldly help, this worldly king, this worldly morality, this worldly change, ultimately will kill you. Just read some of Samuel's speech to the Israelites with me, 8 10 to 17. So Samuel told all the words um, of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. You will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots." He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In short, this king will enlist you to fight his battles. He will force you into his service, he will exploit you for his gain, he will rob you for his cronies, and he will ultimately enslave you to his will. And the rest of the book of 1 Samuel makes the point that robbing, killing, exploiting, enslaving is exactly what Israel's worldly kings will do. He doesn't deliver them or win their battles ultimately in the way that God's people really needs. Indeed, the king that people want, Saul, who will turn to now, well, he ends the book alone, defeated and dead. It just doesn't work. And for every church was depended on and called on the name of the strongman ruler for salvation, well, exactly the same fate is in store. They have ended up dying. Their lampstands have been taken away. Their influence has been lost. They have opened themselves up to being overrun. It's interesting that that happens, isn't it? The established churches in the West are all in decline, even when they have fully embraced the world in order to be more accepting, more palatable to the world where sin is no longer preached against where there's no offense of the gospel to hurt people's feelings. Rather than the world suddenly running into the arms of a so-called welcoming church, the opposite has happened. The world has abandoned it hand over fist. The world, having beaten the church into submission and bent her to his will, it will gut it and leave her standing as ruins in its wake. And that's what happens to us as individual believers as well, ultimately. Ultimately. If these strong men and worldly treasures are the people and things that we as Christians and Redeemer here in this community are listening to and admiring and wishing for and hurtling after, or that we as a church are tempted to run to when things get hard for us, if we are ever tempted to begin to bend to the world and allow its morality to take charge of this family, then we are in a desperate situation. For ultimately, that is a hiding to nothing. We will die. For renewal, by those means, will never come. Renewal will never come through a king like the nations. For terrifyingly, in that day where we find that we have been overrun by our worldly kings and we turn and cry out to the true king for help, in that day, says the gods of Israel in, in 1 Samuel 8, the Lord will not answer you. The strong man will not help me, in other words, at the door of eternity. The ethics and social norms of the world that we have put our trust in will not help me at the gate of glory the power and treasures and strength of the world that we have put our dependence on will not help me at the threshold of the new creation. The person who hides behind the worldly king or human philosophy or secular pagan morality for help and salvation in front of the God of eternity on that day will be met with silence. Be careful what you wish for, people of God. For ultimately, and more alarmingly, point two, if you demand what you want long and loud enough, God will sometimes just give it to you. And that is absolutely what we see in the rest of this passage, also in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. For first, the impressive worldly king is the king we want, and so ultimately, second point, the impressive worldly king is the king that we get. Just read the last few verses of chapter 8. From verse 19, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the, the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, fine, give them what they want. Obey their voice and make them a king. What the people of God wish for, God gives them, and that is not a good thing. And the alarm bells start ringing immediately, don't they, as we hit the beginning of chapter 9, as we see that Saul is the man God goes to to give people exactly what they wish for. Right from the start, we see signs that this new humanly desired king like the nations is not going to go well. Now, we don't have time to to go through the whole of chapter 9 and 10. Let me give you a screamingly quick overview and highlight the important things and read it at home. Do read it at home. It's a great read. First of all, how is Paul described? Chapter 9, verse 2, he is described as handsome as tall. He He is head and shoulders above everyone else immediately we should have our ears pricked to that, especially if you're Hebrew. The Hebrew word for tall uh, is a very similar word to the word for pride, and we know what happens to the pride from Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2. They will be brought low. They will be humbled. God is against the proud. Already, it seems, this Saul is someone whom God is going to have to humble, a, a man who will set himself against God, and that is exactly what we see happening throughout the rest of the book from these chapters onwards, especially next week. As we see, Saul set his heart against God, and against his kingdom, against his people, and ultimately against his king, his true king, David. Second alarm bell, Saul's name itself, the name for Saul is a play on words of, of man has asked for, which in this context is not the king that we want. We want a king, as we'll see in a few chapters time, that is an after God's heart king. So things look very ominous. However, what is most interesting here in chapters 9 to 11, which is the question I think that you lot might have, is that something seems to be happening here that we perhaps didn't expect, and that is that things start off really well, to such an extent that we have Samuel in chapter 11 calling this a time of renewal for the kingdom. So what has happened? Did God lie about the warning of the worldly king? Was he just pouting and sulking because actually Saul was going to do a better job than he thought he was going to do? He just didn't like it. Or was renewal actually going to come through a king that looked like the nations regardless, and God actually didn't have much to do with this? Well, no. What we see here are the outworking of three simple truths that we're just going to unfold this morning, and we're going to see unfold over the course of the whole book of 1 Samuel. And I'm just going to highlight them as we draw all these points to a close this morning. The first truth we see woven all the way through chapters 9 to 11 is that God is still ultimately in charge of his people. That's really important despite his people wishing to dethrone him. In chapters 9 and 10, we have this extraordinary story of Saul being brought by the providence of God to Samuel to be anointed as king through the crazy route of Saul searching the whole of Israel for some lost disobedient donkeys. It's really nuts. Read it when you're at home. And at different stages of what is a very bizarre journey, God maneuvers Saul to happenstance meetings with Samuel every now and again, to the point where Samuel is told by God that this man, Saul, is to be the people's king over Israel, and Samuel has to anoint him. It's a very bizarre story of coincidences that you couldn't write. So who is in charge of of Saul being king? God is. God will give his people what they wish for, but he will do it. He will engineer it. He is still fully in control. He's not suddenly rendered powerless by the will of the people. He will organize and arrange through extraordinary means this worldly king that his people want. But secondly, the second truth of these chapters is that even though God's people have rejected God as king, God is still determined by his grace and faithfulness to give his people hints through this wrong king as to what his right king will eventually perfectly look like. And those hints are scattered all the way through these chapters as we see the way that God enables Saul to succeed. And most of them are actually highlighted in one verse, chapter 10, verse 6. Just read from from 10, verse 5 with me. After that, that is um, after Saul had, uh, had uh, been anointed by Samuel, and he's been sent back to his hometown, Samuel says, you shall come to uh, Gibeoth Elohim, uh, Saul, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man." Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Can you see the three marks of God's king that God wants to highlight? Verse 6 is the fact that God's king will ultimately be someone upon whom the spirit rushes. God's king will be someone who will prophesy and speak the words of God himself. And God's king will be someone who is a completely different kind of man who has, look down at verse 9, been given by God another heart. So whoever God's true king will be is going to somehow exhibit all those traits. A human who has the spirit of God on him, who will speak God's words, and who will be a different kind of man with a a different kind of heart, a God-focused heart, a God-made heart, or a man who is indeed after God's own heart. And with that kind of the king on God's throne, what would that kind of king produce for God's people? Well, victory and renewal. And that's what we see with Saul as we come to chapter 11. We see him proclaim king. Ultimately, he takes on this pagan king, Nahash. And as in chapter 11, verse 6, again, the spirit rushes on Saul. Uh, righteous anger and strength is kindled in him, and he defeats God's enemies. God's king will exhibit all the traits that Saul exhibits here, except God's king will not be tall, proud, asked for by man, chosen by the people, king like the nation Saul. It will be a king chosen, hand-picked by God himself. And that brings us to our third and final truth in these chapters this morning. For what does this mean for God's people under Saul? Why does God allow this king of the nations to succeed in the way that he shouldn't be succeeding? What of God's warning back in chapter 8? Is God lying there? Well, no. For thirdly, it is true that for a while, for God's people then and for God's people today life under our chosen kings of the nations that we flock to can seem for a short time right and comfortable. It's true, isn't it, that a hand-picked flower from the meadows can look beautiful in the vase on the kitchen table, but the reality is that it is dead. And give it a few days and it'll show the signs of its death as it wilts and rots. It's true That a strongman leader in our nations through empire, dictatorship, military might or democracy or whatever could protect the church for a little while, perhaps even make it look like it's flourishing. But the reality is that the church has died if it gives itself over to them. And give it a few years and it'll show signs of its death. And suddenly we're sort of looking back, aren't we, at history and seeing signs of incredible death that we didn't even notice was happening. It's true that our church leaders can be kings of the world, slick, popular, eloquent, strategic, riding high on the issues of our day, and they could grow the church for a while, but without God's heart, they are ultimately dead and will eventually show signs of that death. And it is true that hiding behind secular ethics and societal norms and obedience to the world and putting our trust in treasure, money, success, status will seem to make us grow as individuals and perhaps protect us for a while. But in reality, we are dead if we make those things our king. And on the day that we stand before our true king, having put our trust in those princes, we will call on the name of him, the true king, for help, and he will not be able to answer us. And that is what happens to Saul. The very next episode after today, which we'll look at next week, it it all begins to fall apart. Saul's true heart is exposed. The whole of 1 Samuel is a mess of mistakes, bitterness, envy, cruelty, and all the things Samuel spoke of in chapter 8. This king of the nations will leave God's people exposed in danger, and he himself will die at the hands of God's enemies. Ultimately, God gives us what we want. And what we want is a king like the nations. And a king like the nations is what we get. With all the consequences of that, be very careful what you wish for. But, even in the colossal mistake of his people, God will never give up fighting to remind us of the king that he wants to give us and the renewal that he will bring his people through by his incredible grace. And that's where we finish this morning. For despite what his people deserve, he will bring about renewal eventually through his king. He will do it. For we need to leave this passage today where chapter 11 leaves us, and that is with this increasing desire, as we go through 1 Samuel, for the king and for the kingdom that God wants for us, which does lead to incredible renewal. To desire the king that we need, not the king that we think we want. For the king that we need, as highlighted in God's grace through chapters 10 and 11, is a king who has God's heart, who is a new kind of man, who will defeat God's enemies. And we're going to see increasingly that that man is King David for the people of God. Someone who looks the opposite of the king like the nations. Not tall like Saul, but small, and not even in the family photograph when Samuel turns up. Not a strong man, but but a lowly shepherd. Not a proud man, but one from humble beginnings, and a man who will directly have a heart after God's own. But ultimately we know, don't we, that the renewal of the kingdom here in chapter 11 is not even pointing towards David. For it is ultimately pointing towards Jesus. God's son, God's king, God's man on the earth, God's rightful and only true king who looks so opposite to the kings of the nations that the people didn't even recognize him. When he came to his own people, they did not know him, John 1. A man who literally has the heart of God as God himself. A man who literally speaks the word of God as his prophet, for he is the word of the Father. A man who is in form, function, and being completely a completely different type of man. Fully man, but fully God. And a man, a king, who literally fights our battles. Who truly defeats his enemies, our enemies, on our behalf, on behalf of his beleaguered, distressed, and persecuted people. And more than that, he is a man, a king, who does all of that for his people without enslaving them or robbing them blind or stealing their children to fight for him. But who will do all of that for his people as a shepherd king, introduced to the world as a baby king, riding into his city on a donkey-type king, a king who exemplifies humility, who, as Hannah prays, God will raise and exalt, but he will do so on a cross. A king who does not demand the sacrifice of his subjects for his glory, but who sacrifices himself and gives up his glory for the protection of his people. Who comes as a king not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, and who will walk into the realms of death and sin and hell, and he will gut them, leaving them defeated and rotten and ended at the entrance of an open tomb. That is the king that we need. And what we wouldn't give for a king like that, that is the only way God's people survive and thrive. And we should get to the end of this and every passage in 1 Samuel and say what we wouldn't give for that kind of king. And praise God that there is one. Praise God that there is a king who we can rightly hide behind and who we will eventually stand in front of on that day with all our mistakes, where we will not be met with silence but with open arms for eternity. As we close, I'm just going to read Psalm 146 as it goes through all of this in deep detail as we praise the Lord for his king. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose, help, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for your wonderful words to us this morning. Thank you so much for your words of warning to us this morning, us, your church, and as individual people who follow the Lord Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would protect us from falling into the trap of desiring and running after kings like the nations, Father, please, we are so sorry for when we are tempted to do that, when we do do that at points in our lives, when we, we want the comforts that the world offers to protect us in this life. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, we repent of those sins. We repent of the sins of our nation that has led us to this point in church life. Father, we have been a party to that, and we are so sorry. Father, we ask that you would accept our forgiveness and that you would set us right as we seek to be more like the people you intend, a, 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 a people who are transformed into the likeness of the King, to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be people who bow the knee to Jesus, who love him, who run after him, who, who want to know more about him and who are unashamed of him, telling people the, the reality of his gospel, the, the word that he brings from the Father that is good for salvation for all who believe. Father God, help us to be that kind of church. Father, help us to be those kind of leaders that that point people to the King and and, and who who sacrifice ourselves for each other. And may it be, Heavenly Father, that we would always love coming to your word, enjoy being warned and and, and excited and enthused because of your grace, which finds us and takes us through the death of our King Jesus into the throne room of God himself. Father, we praise you for all these wonderful truths in the name of King Jesus. Amen.